It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Today's guest is Andrew Ferguson, Assistant Professor of Materials Science and Engineering at the University of Illinois. He holds a PhD in Chemical and Biological Engineering from Princeton University and was a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. We're going to discuss how machine learning and data-driven modeling has changed the way we understand biological materials, specifically targeting data-driven computational vaccine and design based on a presentation he made at the recent Share the Vision Innovation and Startup Showcase on the Illinois campus. Professor Ferguson, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, talk about uh, the problem. We like to start there and why it's been so difficult to find a vaccine for uh, uh, hepatitis C and for HIV. So yeah, so hepatitis C virus, HCV for short, and uh, human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, are two infectious diseases which continue to sort of uh, be, a, be a global scourge, um, despite sort of 20 or 30 years of, of research into a vaccine. Uh, so we're very fortuitous living in the United States that, w- that we do have good treatments for these bugs. And so if you contract HCV or HIV, uh, you'll be put on treatment courses. The one for HCV will actually ultimately eliminate infection with 95% probability. And for HIV, will suppress infection. Uh, viral levels to such low loads that you actually stop being infectious. Um, and so in both cases, you can typically live a, a, a typically normal life. Uh, the problem is really on the, in the developing world where these therapies, simply because of their expense and the medical management they require, are not available. And so in order to sort of uh, counter the global pandemic, something, uh, something else has to be done. And that something else is probably going to be a prophylactic vaccine, which is very inexpensive, uh, very easy to administer, and can be sort of deployed on large scale. Um, and so we still don't have these vaccines. So although we've, uh, we've been working sort of 20, 30 years to develop these, they're still not available. And so um, some of the things that we're interested in is, is trying to use computation to help guide the experimental design of vaccines uh, towards promising candidates. So why is the landscape, just talk a little bit about the development and advances in, in computation and why uh, this is the time that uh, you've been able to really begin to tackle this problem because that um, of, of the evolution of supercomputing. Right. So it's really two things. And so it's, a, it's the evolution of computers. And so we still continue to just follow Moore's law. And so the doubling of the number of transistors per chip every two years still continues to hold. Probably within the next five to 10 years, that will cease to be the case. Uh, but right now, that means that, that with every passing year, computation is becoming uh, faster and cheaper, meaning that we can solve larger problems more efficiently. Um, tandem with that, uh, sequencing costs are, are falling extremely rapidly, actually quicker than exponential. And so now uh, it's, it's vastly cheaper to sequence a genome compared to last year, meaning that we can sequence viral genomes at, at larger uh, rates than ever before. And so the, these two factors mean that the two things are happening. We're able to compile larger and larger databases of viral sequences. And so this is uh, when someone becomes infected with, with hepatitis C or HIV, they go to the clinic, they have their blood drawn, and they may have their viral load sequenced. And so now we have observations of the virus in the wild. Um, And so this is giving us information about how the virus is evolving uh, across the human population. And so now using large, efficient computation, we can deploy some machine learning and some data-driven techniques to try and interrogate that sequence data to try and uh, help inform models of how the virus is behaving and ultimately use that to guide uh, experimental vaccine design efforts towards putative uh, high-potency candidates. 
I want to kind of go over a few terms and uh, will help us uh, better as we uh, go down this path. First of all, talk about a viral fitness landscape and what that means. Right. So this is the sort of uh, cornerstone of the entire approach that we're developing. And so the viral fitness landscape is actually a very old idea. It goes back to one of the fathers of population genetics, Sewell Wright, uh, back in the 1930s. And so as he was thinking about how, how viruses evolve uh, as they're sort of moving through human hosts, he uh, proposed this abstract concept of a viral fitness landscape. And so, so what is this? And so if you have a virus with a bunch of different amino acids, each amino acid can take on one of 20 different, different identities. And so depending on the particular pattern of amino acids, you may have um, viruses with different fitnesses. And so these mutations in the amino acids give rise to different fitnesses. So what do we mean by a fitness? So fitness is basically how able the virus is to then replicate and cause damage within the host. And so in the case of hepatitis C virus, the virus uh, infects your hepatocytes, which are your liver cells. And so a very fit virus will be able to rapidly infect your liver cells, proliferate throughout your liver, and, and do a very good job of sort of destroying your cells. Similarly for HIV, um, it targets your CD4 T cells, your helper T cells. And so a fit HIV virus will be able to, to proliferate and infect your T cells and deplete your immune system very efficiently. And so really the idea of a fitness landscape is it tells you for particular mutations how dangerous is the virus. So now Sewell Wright uh, proposed this as an abstract concept because um, he, he thought there would never be any hope of really mapping out this landscape simply because it's so large. And so if you have 100 amino acids in your viral protein, each of which can take on 20 different identities, you have 20 to the 100 different mutants just in one protein. Um, and actually viruses tend to have sort of hundreds or even a thousand amino acids. And so the number of mutants is simply astronomical. It's actually larger than the number of protons in the known universe. And so the idea of going in and experimentally measuring the fitness of every possible viral mutant is simply intractable. Um, however, with high throughput computation and large sequence databases and some machine learning techniques, we can actually make this idea concrete. We still can't screen through every single viral candidate, um, every single mutation, but we can get get a large chunk of that space and use models to try and fill in the gaps to really make this idea of a fitness landscape concrete. Um, and so with this, now we can actually map out where the peaks and the valleys of the fitness are and use that to try and guide vaccine design to try and hit the virus where it hurts and kick it out of the fitness peaks and trap it in the fitness valleys. Are you able to, I mean, obviously you do this in the lab, but are you able to have access to real patients with real diseases, uh, with, with these diseases, um, or are these the uh, viruses that you just uh, have specifically in the labs? Um, so these viruses are actually, so we're one step sort of uh, abstracted from, from the patients. And so typically the patients uh, and the hosts will, will present at the clinic and they will have their blood drawn, their viral load will be sequenced. Um, and those viral sequences will go into large databases that are held at places like Los Alamos National Lab or the Broad Institute at MIT. And those are public repositories. And so this is a really wonderful uh, thing that, that, that the community has done is to make these data public. And so the folks like me can then have access to real data and, and sort of scale and quality that would simply not be possible if, if I was just a single person trying to, trying to work on this problem. And so particularly for computationalists uh, who, who don't have any sort of uh, clinical or experimental expertise, having access to this data really is, is, is sort of an, an enabling technology for us. So you're a material, material scientist and a physicist. Um, you're talking computation. How, how much of this work is done in computation and how much of it is done real in actually using um, the disease in, in the lab. So you know, talk about the crossover and who you have to have in your team uh, to be able to, uh, to attack this problem this way. 
Yeah, that's right. So everything that we do is, is theoretical and computational. So, so I was trained as a chemical engineer, um, which meant that I learned a lot about uh, mathematical modeling, molecular modeling, um, statistical thermodynamics, um, and some applied math. And so it turns out that all of those techniques that we use to um, understand molecular phenomena and sort of chemistry, physics, engineering, can actually be transposed uh, relatively seamlessly over to this sort of idea of, of understanding viruses. Um, and so what we think we bring as sort of engineers to this problem is sort of a, a skill set that can uh, be deployed in, to understand viruses in, in new ways. And so I guess the way I think about this computation is, is we're sort of the fat end of the funnel. We can do things sort of very high throughput, very inexpensively, perhaps um, identify promising candidates. But ultimately, the proof of the pudding is, is an experimentation. And so um, as, a, as to put some concrete numbers on this, for one particular um, hepatitis C virus protein, the RNA polymerase, we were able to sort of exhaustively screen through um, uh, 10 to the 7 different viral candidates. It's a very large number, so 10 million viral candidates, and reduce that down to around 100 promising candidates for experimental testing. And so in principle, we were able to hand this off to experimentalists to now massively reduce the space that they have to search over um, and focus sort of scarce experimental time, money, resources towards what computation has inexpensively predicted to be, to be good candidates. Um, and so what this really relies on is close cooperation between myself and then sort of folks with experimental and clinical expertise. And so as a postdoc, I work closely with people at the Reagan Institute of uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, MIT, and Harvard, which brings together computationalists, clinicians, uh, experimentalists together in the same sort of uh, institute to really try and bring to bear all of these different techniques on, on the same problem. Um, here at Illinois, we're very fortunate over in molecular and cellular biology. Um, I have colleagues who are expert in these viral systems who I can partner with. And then we're also tremendously excited by the new uh, Carl, uh, Carl partnership with the School of Medicine down here, sort of engineering medicine, which is sort of bang on or this, this idea, which is bringing together engineers and clinicians to solve problems in, in life sciences and medicine. I uh, definitely want to get back to that uh, part as we go along. Um, last year, you published a paper outlining work to discover the blueprint for natural uh, antimicrobial peptides or AMP sequences. Can you talk a little bit about that and how, how it relates with uh, what we've talked about so far? Sure. So this was a, a separate piece of work um, using similar ideas, actually. And so, so this, uh, this problem is now not to do with viruses, it's to do with peptides. Um, and so it turns out that nature has evolved as part of the innate immune response. This is the immune response that, that plants have, that simple animals, that humans have. It's sort of the, the basic immune response. In addition, as humans, we have much more complex responses, but this is sort of the first line of defense. Um, and as part of that first line of defense, um, there exist a number of very sharp peptides, uh, just strings of sort of 10, 20, 30 amino acids that actually have very potent membrane activities. What, what does that mean? So it means that they can uh, bind to the surface of bacteria and actually punch holes through their membranes. And so in doing so, they can act as antimicrobials by sort of puncturing the membranes. They can then cause the cell contents to leak out. They can cause membrane depolarization. Uh, they can interfere with the inner workings of the bacteria such that they're no longer able to reproduce. Um, and so we were interested, in, in, along with many others, for, for the last sort of decade or so, 
is can we use computation to help us, number one, understand how these proteins are, are working, and number two, help us design uh, new proteins, perhaps with an uh, elevated potency. And so one way to do this is, again, to use machine learning. So it's a different flavor of machine learning, but, but the, the concepts are very similar to, to the viral idea. And so what we did here was to take um, a bunch of uh, known antimicrobial peptides, and so these have been isolated in the lab and their antimicrobial function has been, has been proven, and a bunch of decoys. And so these are peptides that look similar in many ways. They have the same length, they have similar amino acid compositions, they have the same structure, but they're not membrane active. And so then it's, it's rather difficult for humans to try and deconvolute what distinct which is uh, an antimicrobial peptide from one that's not. Just by looking at the sequence, it's, it's almost impossible to tell. And so we asked the machine to try and learn if they could do this for us. And so we took sort of a, an ensemble of around 200 hits and 200 misses, and we trained a, a machine learning algorithm. It goes by a funny name. It's called a support vector machine, but it's nothing more than a classifier that tells you, um, are you a hit or are you a miss? And it turned out that uh, with some training, this machine uh, learning tool can tell us with sort of greater than 90% accuracy whether you're likely to be a hit or a miss. And so a number of people have done this in the literature going back 10 years. There's very e efficient models and, and various different ways of doing it. Uh, the spin that we had on it, which we found very interesting, is we used a special technique to try and simplify the model as far as possible. And so we were able to boil down um, how we classified these peptides using a very small number of properties of the peptide. And so it turns out by using just 12 properties of the peptide, we can classify with greater than 90% accuracy whether it will be antimicrobial or not. And so it turns out that some of these properties um, that the machine learned align very well with human learning. And so people knew for a long time these peptides have to be cationic, meaning they have to be positively charged to try and associate with negatively charged bacterial membranes. They have to be hydrophobic because they have to embed inside the membrane and they have to have particular patterns of amino acids. And so it was, it was heartening to see that our machine learning model recapitulated things that were previously understood. But moreover, it was able to predict new things, so new ways of, of trying to understand why these peptides were, were membrane active. Um, so that was the first sort of uh, new thing we were able to discover. And the second thing we were able to do was to partner with talented experimentalists at UCLA, uh, so Professor Gerard Wong and his team, who were actually able to test some of the predictions of our machine learning classifier um, to, to check that it was actually, it had high accuracy and the predictions were working well, and moreover, test some of the, the, the predictions. And so one of the exciting things we found is as we were sort of collaborating with our experimentalist colleagues, is that we ran a bunch of known peptide families with different primary functions. And so these were peptides that were not considered to be membrane active. Um, they were things that were involved in sort of mitochondrial fission. They were involved in sort of topogenic remodeling. Uh, they were involved in different aspects of cellular function. And our classifier predicted them to actually be membrane active. And so it turns out that we're able to find secondary functions in these, in these uh, interesting peptide families that were not previously known. Similar things, I think, are happening in genetics um, and, and trying to be predictive of whether you're, you're going to get cancer, for instance, or you're going to have certain genetic uh, diseases or problems. You can predict those through computation. You know, th those are the th this is somewhat related, but um, things are happening in genetics as well um, to use computation to try to predict your, the probability you might get a certain disease. 
Yeah, right. I think it's a really exciting time for uh, sort of computation and, and life sciences. And so, like I said, with the uh, the, the explosion and, and sort of sequence data and the explosion and sort of the, the affordability and the, the speed of computation, we can now do things that were unimaginable before simply because of the scale of the data available and our ability to deploy sort of data-driven techniques with uh, fast computers to crunch this data. Uh, so, yeah, so, so I think sort of predictive uh, genetics, sort of um, tailored medicine, so you can have your genome sequenced and it can be predictive to some extent of, of what pathologies you, you may be concerned about. Um, another exciting place is actually in uh, pathological classification. Um, so you have uh, some perhaps uh, some biopsy taken, you have that sent to the lab, it's sliced up uh, microscopy image taken, and then typically it's handed off to expert pathologists, humans, who will then classify whether you, you, you're in danger of, of, of uh, sustaining some illness or not. It turns out a lot of these things can be automated, and so you can train basically um, algorithms that were developed in computer vision to try and help do pathological classification. And it turns out some of these are rather sophisticated and can approach the level of sort of um, accuracy of a human. And so this now allows you to do far higher throughput classification than we possible before. So give us an idea of where we are right now. Um, proving the technique, are we, um, how close could you say maybe we are from from predicting some of these things to, to actually come up with, with some results, or are we several years away, do you think? Um, so it's still the early stages, I think. Um, a lot of the the issues with um, sort of applying these techniques in, in, in medicine, as you know, require a lot of sort of um, approvals. And so you, these techniques have to be proven. They have to be demonstrated safe. Uh, they have to be incorporated into sort of medical protocols. And so all of these uh, requirements need to be satisfied before you can deploy it as, as a tool in, in sort of a, a doctor's visit or a hospital scenario. And so I think we're at sort of the leading edge of this, that there's, there's more and more data and there's more and more work happening in this area. And I think the medical community is becoming receptive to seeing the real power of these techniques and incorporating them into, into some of the, the existing uh, frameworks that they have. And so I think it's a really exciting time to be an engineer. It's really exciting time to, to partner with clinicians. And I think the, the, these sort of techniques are really going to explode in the, in the coming years. Well, you mentioned the Carl Illinois College of Medicine. This is the type of thing that, that we're talking about when we're talking about partnering and creating this uh, medical school um, correct on that. And um, so just talk about that and what the possibilities are as the two groups of of medicine and engineering and biology all all merge at this uh, at the Carl Illinois College of Medicine. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a sort of wonderful testament to the leadership of, of Carl in Illinois that they're pulling this together, bringing the complementary strengths of, of Carl and, and sort of engineering the uh, engineering school of, of, of UIUC together. Um, and so I think that the the idea of bringing engineers and clinicians together is a very powerful one, and I, I think that that this can lead to um, technologies learn lead to predictions that, that neither group could make individually, um, and so the I think that one important thing is that. Um, in order to be useful in medicine, you have to, as an engineer, you have to be able to provide new understanding or new predictions that, that couldn't have been demonstrated before. Um, and I think clinicians are, are very receptive to, to these technologies, but they need to be proven. They need to sort of demonstrate some sort of efficacy that the clinician could not have come up with on, on their own. Um, and so I think things like pr 
making testable predictions using sort of these, these computational techniques is very important. And then sort of validating and demonstrating them in real in vitro and, and sort of in vivo settings is going to be vital. I think it's, it's fundamentally interesting to us as perhaps engineers and physical scientists to find new physical understanding, understand how things work, but then sort of translating that to new technologies, I think then uh, it takes it one step further and makes these sort of impactful things for the general population, which is, is really exciting. Well, on the topic that uh, that kind of led uh, this program, can you talk about how that is a building bro building block for what's next? And can you can you look into your crystal ball a little bit and and determine, you know, because we can do this, here's here are many other things that uh, we are soon we will soon be able to do. Yeah, so I, I think um, so. Speaking to the viral stuff, I think that being able to sort of do um, these types of uh, physical models, to build these physical models for viruses can then help accelerate vaccine design. And so um, I've talked about hepatitis C and HIV. I think it could also play a large role in uh, dengue fever, where, where there, there's no vaccine available. Ebola, which, uh, as we know, the, the sort of Ebola and Zika crises of, of recent years, can we sort of uh, use computation to help design vaccines more rapidly? Could we have um, used these types of techniques, uh, maybe looking 10 years down the road, to help control outbreaks more effectively? Um, and actually, even the seasonal influenza vaccine. And so this is only sort of up to 60 and sometimes as bad as only 10% effective, depending on the prediction of what strains are circulating each year. So can we use these sort of data-driven techniques to help improve the efficacy of, of the influenza vaccine? Um, and so I think in, in the area of, of sort of, uh, of, of pathogens, these are the exciting directions. Um, looking towards uh, broader scope, which I, I'm less familiar with, but um, I would say personalized medicine. And so can you present at, uh, at, the, at the clinic, have your blood drawn, and then have all sorts of analyses done very efficiently using sort of computational models on this uh, pinprick of blood to try and do all sorts of diagnostics sort of on demand for a, a particular person? Um, or can we use these types of models um, to help perhaps um, do sort of on-demand classification of patho pathology slides or uh, breast cancer analyses sort of uh, on the day of your visit rather than sort of waiting to send this off to a lab. So sort of accelerating the pace of medicine, guiding experimentation away from an Edisonian trial and error type approach um, towards sort of a more guided and directed approach, and then sort of personalizing medicine are all ways that I, I see this sort of being exciting in the, in the coming years. Well, hopefully I was able to give you a chance to replicate a little bit of your presentation. Anything else that, that you can remember from that that um, perhaps we haven't talked about uh, so far that you feel like would be important uh, to our listeners uh, as it relates to, to this, um, this presentation? Um, so, so one other thing which we haven't sort of touched on is sort of the importance of um, sort of incubators, uh, research funding, VC funding for potentially the, these, these types of novel ideas. And so I think one of the other strengths of this engineering medicine, bringing together college engineering, Carl medicine, is also the uh, research park that we have down in South Campus. And so there's the opportunity for academic ideas to be sort of seated in the lab. And then if they, they look to be promising, then spun off into companies. And so in, in the coming years, I foresee sort of there being a, a, a large growth and sort of medical startups driven by engineering medicine. Uh, so folks coming in and, and seeing potential ideas that, that could be developed and, and, and built into large companies and through a sort of VC and, and angel funding. And so I think that's another key strength that Illinois has um, that, that's really exciting. Anything on your horizon as it relates to that? 
Um, so not yet. And so we, we're sort of, uh, I see ourselves being in sort of a, the very basic end. And so come in the coming years, if we're able to sort of partner with clinicians, partner with experimentalists and show that these things are actually promising technologies and develop proof of principle, um, I would be excited to move in that direction. But, but right now, I think we're a little too basic. Um, certainly, uh, Illinois has a diversity of researchers at, at various stages. And so some of my colleagues in material science um, have startup companies and sort of self-healing materials or um, sort of developing new uh, new therapies. And then the university as a whole, we're very strong in sort of the Beckman Institute, um, the various engineering disciplines and spinning out companies. And so we have a strong um, portfolio as a university and we have a very um, good sort of uh, office of technology management that helps shepherd these things. And so I think if this is something that, that became interesting to, to, to me, there's, there's certainly a well-paved road that I could follow to do this. Well, Andrew Ferguson has been our guest. I appreciate you uh, coming in and chatting with us on this. Certainly a topic that's very fascinating, and we look forward to, to seeing what happens in the future and, and to have you back uh, to talk about this and other topics in the future. Great. Thanks, Mike. This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Thanks for listening. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our corpse of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.